Well, thank you once again for joining us. Welcome to Grace. Uh, today, we are at the threshold of uh, embarking on a new course of study. We'll call it our, our journey through the Bible. We want to do it in short order. Uh, I say short order. Do you know that means lengthy, but not as lengthy as some? Uh, and we'll make it a, a little series, uh, a journey through the Bible. Uh, actually, what we're doing today is setting the stage for that study. Um, and the reason why is because uh, we've come to the third cornerstone of Romans, which is chapter 9, and we call that the dispensational cornerstone uh, in Paul's handbook on faith. So uh, let's take a look at it on the screen. We'll put it up here for you. There it is. You recall that Romans is laid out uh, according to uh, four different uh, doctrinal issues, four different sections, as we said. Uh, we've called them cornerstones. And in that cornerstone, in each of those cornerstones of Romans, the Apostle Paul spells out specific uh, details of a particular doctrinal issue uh, that he wants us to understand if we're to be properly uh, grounded in grace dispensation truth. Uh, the, f- the first section of Romans, of course, is called the justification cornerstone. It was in that cornerstone that we learned the impossibility of uh, any human being measuring up to the standard of God's perfect um, justice through performance. And of course, um, the law of Moses was God's picture of the performance that would be required if righteousness was to come by way of conduct. Uh, Paul summed it up in three verses for us. We'll just briefly look at the three. Romans 3.10. Here Paul writes, as it is written, there is how many? You know the answer already and you know it by heart. None righteous, no, not one. Now, we understand, we can't get silly with this, we understand that Paul's not talking about relative righteousness here, righteousness man to man. Uh, Certainly some are more right in their conduct, in their behavior, than are others. Uh, However, no man measures up to the righteousness that belongs to God himself. And that's the issue in this verse we've just read. This is the reason for Paul's therefore in Romans uh, uh, 3.20. The the, uh, same chapter here, Paul goes on to say, therefore, by the deeds of the law, therefore being, you know, everything he's proven up to this point, therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Now, some have suggested that there were those who were justified by their law keeping. Uh, And, you know, in Israel, they, they had faith and law keeping, so they were justified in God's sight. The only ones that weren't justified by law-keeping were those who had law-keeping without the faith. Um, but that isn't the case. Uh, justification with law-keeping, the law was weak in the flesh in that the law couldn't change the flesh from what the flesh was and the law could make no man measure up through performance to the, to the righteousness that belongs to God himself. In total impossibility. The law program wouldn't work. If there were people that could be justified by having faith and their law-keeping during that program then we wouldn't have needed another program. That program would have been all that was necessary. Uh, So Romans 3.23 is a verse most folks know quite well. You know it by heart, I'm sure. Although we've got to say the religiously minded folks ignore the verb tense uh, in the second half of Paul's statement here. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned, point in time past, and throughout time past actually, and all are continually coming short of the glory of God. That's the verb tense. It's a a continuum there. Uh, We learned in the justification cornerstone of Romans, chapters 1 through 5, that first cornerstone, that God knew all along how he would be able to declare unjust men, practically speaking, to be perfectly just and maintain his character of truth and justice at the very same time. Uh, God would base the righteousness that he would require for a man to be just in his sight on belief rather than upon behavior. Uh, that certainly was a, a uh, revelation and a, a truth that hidden to Satan, hidden to all men, but hidden to Satan. Here it is from the Apostle Paul in Romans 3.28. Therefore, we conclude the man is justified by faith without. Now, that word without doesn't mean with no. It means apart from, apart from the deeds of the law. <clears throat> so the law was never given, as you folks have heard and doing this brief review of what we've discussed in these first two cornerstones. The law was never given so that men could be justified by law-keeping, in spite of the notion uh, that some folks have today. The law was given to prove the necessity of a right standing before God apart from behavior. So the Apostle Paul is telling us about imputed righteousness in this first cornerstone of Romans. The law had a weakness, as we said earlier. Uh, And Paul tells us about that weakness in that the law could never change the flesh into something other than the flesh. 
And of course the flesh, when we talk about the flesh, we're talking about that sin nature, our identification with that sin nature, which is ongoing and will continue till we have new earthly tents. Uh, the sin nature is a part of the earthly tent in which we now dwell. Uh, what was God's plan? Well, righteousness based on belief, not on behavior. That was God's plan. Paul reveals the result of taking God at his word during the dispensation of grace concerning the sin-resolving crosswork accomplishment of, uh, of the Son of God as, as he works toward the conclusion of the justification cornerstone. Here it is in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, another therefore. Uh, so this, this book is full of therefores from Paul. Therefore, being justified by faith, having been justified with continuing results, is the verb tense there, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. What exciting news. Uh, Paul presented to us in the first cornerstone of Romans. We have God's gift declaration of rightness. And it belongs to us right now. Uh, we have it this very moment. It belonged to us since we first believed the gospel of Christ. We were declared to be perfectly righteous. What made it more astounding was the fact that all of our works, all of our human efforts, uh, our obedience in any way whatsoever to a set of rules or a code of conduct, no matter what that code might be, all of the merit we could possibly muster in our performance uh, is excluded when it comes to this judicial decree of rightness before God. This is what we learned in the first cornerstone of Romans, the justification cornerstone. As our regular listeners have heard me mention on numerous occasions, God credits all believers. It's this doctrine of imputation. He credits to the account of all believers uh, that righteousness that belongs to his very own son. Uh, an incredible uh, plan that God had and kept secret. To credit us with his son's righteousness apart from our commitment, or conduct this is why it's called justification by grace uh, through faith. The first cornerstone of Romans then reveals the truth of this declaration uh, of rightness that comes as a free gift to all and uh, all who believe the good news Paul calls the gospel of Christ. In the second cornerstone of Romans, as you see it there, Paul presented the glorious truth of the spiritual transaction number two called sanctification. If you're established in these doctrines, uh, the fear will go away because these doctrines are filled with these eternal security. Every believer is sanctified or set apart as holy according to our apostle. It's not something you do. Now, there is a self-sanctification. You can set yourself apart unto something, uh, whatever that might be. But this sanctification is God-accomplished. God does that himself. And like justification, it's, it's a judicial transaction granted to believers, not by anything those individual believers do or commit to do, but through something the Holy Spirit does on behalf of every believer at the point of a person's belief. The Holy Spirit identifies each and every believer with the Savior. Um, so the Holy Spirit is the baptizer in this case, and that, draw, you know, that causes a lot of... Uh, Anxiety and the folks of minds that want to hang on to a different baptism, a baptism for a different time. But this isn't about being baptized with the Holy Spirit here, uh, as was the case in time past. This is about being baptized by the Holy Spirit here. Someone has said that baptism means immersion. Uh, some folks insist that immersion is what baptism is all about, and the word means immersion. Well, um, however correct that position might be makes no difference. Baptism has to do with identification. I think I used in years past, my grandmother used to uh, make pickled eggs. Anyone have the pickled eggs that where they were actually pickled in beet juice? Well, she would immerse those eggs in the beet juice, and pretty soon those eggs became identified with what? The beet juice. <laughs> and so, uh, it, it, you know, and I think the Amish still do this. They still have this at the Amish smorgasbords, which I love to go to because I get those pickled eggs again. But um, the fact is, baptism has to do with identification. And so immersion in that sense was uh, for given to Israel and to those proselytes to Judaism who wanted to make their confession, who wanted to be identified with the confession God calls, called upon Israel to make in Leviticus 26.40. Um, but when it comes to the baptism Paul's revealing for this dispensation of grace, he wasn't referring to being immersed into water at all. Now, water has nothing at all to do with this baptism. Paul refers to the fact that the Holy Spirit performs a miracle in the life of every believer by totally immersing that believer into the person of the Savior. Uh, we use the word fusion just to try to get a better grasp of what this is talking about. This is nothing new, I realize fully well, when it comes to you folks, but it's great review uh, for those who've been following our Roman study and for those who are 
maybe just tuning in for the very first time. And surprisingly enough, maybe not surprisingly, we hear from folks all the time who catch us on uh, the Internet. They catch us on Pal Talk. They catch us on YouTube. And they say, you know, we came across your message. We had several calls this week. Uh, One lady said, where can I find more and where can I get more? I teach an adult Sunday school class. And she said, I need this information. She said, you know, it seems to be that at the church that I attend, they're mixing these two programs together. And so, uh, isn't that amazing? Just heard about it on YouTube. So the very moment we place our faith in the sin-resolving, a sin issue, I should say, resolving accomplishment of the finished crosswork of Jesus Christ, where our sins are concerned, uh, we're placed into Christ, according to the Apostle Paul. Uh, in other words, we are immersed into a person. That's just a, an amazing thing to ponder. The expression, in Christ, or in Him, uh, are two of Paul's favorite expressions. I think we said that earlier on. Um, He used the words in him 18 times. Uh, Interesting in itself. And he used the expression in Christ um, 74 times. He used the words in the Lord 43 times. So if you're doing the math, you know that totals 135 times that we see Paul relaying this idea of our immersion into the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, The idea of being joined to Christ was not... uh, was not only the major tenet, really, of the mystery committed to the Apostle Paul. He talked about it in nearly every epistle he wrote. Uh, we see it, uh, we see it in, in Corinthians. Some would say, we don't see that till Acts 28. Nonsense. I can show it to you in, in Corinthians. Uh, it's in his earlier epistles. So uh, we told you earlier that Romans is the primary, we might say the initial book, to be studied when it comes to the doctrinal order of Paul's epistles because Romans contains the major doctrines that pertain to definite article, the faith. And we talk about the faith. We're talking about the body of truth that Paul relayed to us. Who gave Paul that body of truth? The ascended Lord of glory. So people will say, no, you know, we don't go by what Paul says. We go by what Jesus said because those letters are in red. Well, all of Paul's epistles could be written in red, except where Paul says, I speak not for him, but for me. And uh, that's very seldom. But all of Paul's epistles could be written in red because Jesus Christ did not finish his ministry when he left planet Earth. He spoke to a new apostle from heaven and, of course, relayed to that apostle to relay to us new truth. So it shouldn't surprise us with Paul's use of those expressions that when we count up those three terms, we just mentioned 98 of the 135 times Paul presents the idea of being in Christ come in this foundational epistle of faith, the book of Romans. 98 of the 135 right here in Romans. That's 70% of all occurrences of those three expressions. Uh, What a secret God had been keeping. Uh, A secret no one knew anything about until... Uh, That body of truth we just mentioned that God had kept hidden was revealed to the apostle so that he might make it known to how many men? All men. You better believe he made it known to the twelve. He certainly did because it affected them. They had to believe what Paul preached. Uh, That surprises some people. That was just progressive revelation. Uh, And what did John say in 1 John, not in the Gospel of John? What did John say in 1 John? He became the fully satisfying payment. The propitiation, not for our sins only, meaning Israel's sins, but for the sins of how many? The whole world. So you've got to know that John knew about what Paul was preaching. We see Pauline truth in Hebrews, which is why many people think that the author of Hebrews was Paul. Uh, We see it in in 1st and 2nd Peter. Um, Certainly this, this major facet of the mystery, union with the Savior, Uh, was hidden from Satan. It caught him by complete surprise. And that was God's intention. He didn't want Satan to know how he was going to righteousify people. And that would come by joining people. A marriage, as it would be, we had pictured today, uh, to his son. God would judicially righteousify believing sinners by immersing those believers into the person of his son. That's his plan for all mankind, by the way. Not something reserved for just this dispensation of grace. That is God's plan for all mankind from every dispensation. Righteousification. I like to use that terminology. We see the word justification. But righteousification uh, could only come by a person being joined to the person of the Savior. Otherwise, it's human performance. The only righteousness anybody would have. And God's plan from the get-go was to join believers to the person of His Son. Uh, This is what... um, 
marriage from God's perspective is all about. Two individuals becoming how many? One flesh. Uh, from a legal standpoint, what belongs to one then becomes that which belongs to the other. That's how it's designed to work. This is such a, a thorough immersion, folks, that the believer becomes, in a very real sense, a spiritual sense, that is, absorbed into Christ. Identified. That's the, uh, uh, that's the pickled egg approach that I used earlier illustration. But we called it fusion in the early part of our Roman study in order to get a better grasp of what judicial sanctification is all about. How thoroughly are we joined to Jesus Christ? Well, you folks know full well the passage. It's Ephesians 5.30. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Now, if you feel insecure, you ever get feeling insecure because of your behavior, that's where that insecurity comes from most times, um, and you wonder you know, what God's attitude is toward you today, it may have been you know, on the positive side on Monday, but by Thursday or the next Sunday now, maybe it's uh, waning a little bit because of some activity on your part, and you begin to wonder if if uh, he's beginning to take a negative attitude towards you. Look at Ephesians 5:30. We are members of His body, Christ's body, of Christ's flesh, and of Christ's bones. So God is viewing the believing sinner um, through the lens of His Son. He sees his son, which is why he could call believers saints. And he could not call the earthly kingdom believers saints unless he intended to join those believers to the person of his son, which um, is an amazing truth. This is the mystery. This is the major facet of the mystery, union with Christ. A passage that gives a lot of people goosebumps, (laughs) a passage that also has to do with our union with Jesus Christ, is 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, verses 9 through 10. Anyone recall the passage I have in mind? Well, I'll take you there. I'm sure you'll recall it when I pull it up on the screen. Here it is. Paul said in verse 9 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Know ye not, you should know this, he's saying, uh, that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. A lot of folks don't like to hear some of those words. Uh, Verse 10 goes on to say, nor thieves, nor covetous, uh, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Of course, there won't be any of these behaviors taking place in the earthly kingdom or the heavenly kingdom for that matter. But the problem is, this is generally where folks stop reading right there. Uh, Tell me, would this passage not have applied to Paul himself uh, as he describes himself in in, uh, Romans chapter 7 in his dilemma? Did you notice that word covetous there in verse 10? Well, listen to our apostle describe the problem he found in his life when the law was taken into consideration. We have his words in the second half of Romans chapter 7, verse 7. Notice it here. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. The law showed Paul a problem that he had. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. Verse 8. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law, sin was dead. Now we are to reckon ourselves to be dead to the law, dead to sin. Uh, actually, dead to sin. So it's an amazing thing there. Romans 7, 9. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived, I died. Uh, Paul could not apply the, the law to his problem and resolve his problem. What the Apostle Paul is telling us here is that he learned something about law-keeping for righteousness. Uh, He learned that the law increased his problem rather than alleviate that problem. Uh, Paul learned that by the works of the law, no flesh would be justified in the sight of God, and that included the apostle of the Gentiles himself. Every man included in that decree uh, except the God-man, Jesus Christ. So back to that perplexing problem in the 1 Corinthians passage, at least to those who stop reading at the end of verse 10, Uh, Let's go back there and look at verse 10. Nor thieves, nor covetousness, uh, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Is there a solution to the problem of finding yourself on Paul's sin list in this passage? Uh, Many have. Is there a solution to finding that the flesh is incapable of performing to the standard required for a righteous standing before a perfectly righteous God? Sure, there's a solution. The cornerstone of justification reveals it. Religion would say, straighten up, fly right, uh, stop doing what you have been doing, and God will recognize your new commitment uh, to righteous conduct, and he'll grant you entrance to the kingdom of God. Make a new commitment. Uh, Prove yourself through your performance. That's the idea of religion. Get back to the law. Bring yourself into alignment with what that law tells you not to do. 
Thou shalt not covet. Now, if you stop reading with verse 10, you might very well come to believe that conduct is the key for kingdom entrance, whether it be earthly kingdom or heavenly kingdom entrance. Understand what Paul's just said in this passage applies to both realms, the heavenly kingdom and the earthly kingdom. Keep in mind, the overall kingdom of God includes the earthly realm and the heavenly realm. Uh, remember what Paul said in Ephesians 3:14 and 15. For this cause, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family where? In heaven and where else? And earth is named. Is straightening up the answer. Um, well, hopefully none of these behavioral characteristics are, um, are things that characterize your life. But notice verse verse 11 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6 because we need to go on there. Paul didn't say straighten up. Clean up that act of yours. Get the flesh in alignment. Get your act together and you'll make it to heaven. That's not what our apostle said. He points to an entirely different solution to the sin nature problem and it's revealed in the justification cornerstone of Romans. We can't stop reading with verse 10, folks. We have to move on to verse 11 because it's the same context. Such were some of you, some of you saints in Corinth. could. I'm sure some of the saints in Corinth can find themselves on that list while Paul was writing. They were carnal, but they were also saints. So they could find themselves sitting on Paul's sin list, but ye are, what? Washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified, or as I like to say again, righteousified in the name of the Lord Jesus. And notice who does this sanctifying work. It's not that the believing sinner who performs this. Ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus, and here it is, by the Spirit of our God. So the Holy Spirit is the baptizer. And another important thing to keep in mind, we don't wait for this gift decree of rightness or being set apart as holy to, to take place. Some uh, religious persuasions teach that this is a second work of grace and comes subsequent to our salvation. We're not told to pray for it to happen, uh, to work for it to happen, to get to other, get together with others so that they can show us how to make it happen. No mention whatsoever is made in Scripture of our picturing it happening either through a ritualistic performance that has water involved with it. If this happens automatically and immediately for every believer. This is a, a dry cleaning in a sense. This is a different type of baptism. No water involved. It's a natural consequence of, we can say it happens the very instant we place our faith in the faithful crosswork of our Savior to have resolved God's justice uh, where our sins are concerned when Christ died for our sins, was buried, putting them out of God's sight forever and rose again as proof that God was totally satisfied by the payment for sins that Christ made. Uh, have a fellow on the internet right now, <clears throat> not a very gracious fellow, and uh, uh appeared on somebody's Facebook page and uh, just arguing the case up and down and calling me all sorts of names and he's a rightly divider. Uh, he's a grace believer. And he said, there is no way what you're teaching is heresy. Sins are still on the table of God's justice for unbelievers. If you're an unbeliever, you're going to go to hell for your sins. Uh, a lot of anger. He has a lot of anger which shows up in his writing. Um, but, but anyway, people just do not like the concept that unbelievers... Uh, will not be judged for their sins, but for their unbelief. Uh, they just don't like that concept. And when you say, why is God not imputing the sins of the world to the world? This fellow's answer is he's holding them off for this dispensation of grace. He's just holding on to those, and he's going to bring those back and apply them to unbelievers. But verse 21 tells us why he's not applying, uh, not imputing the sins of the world or counting the sins of the world to the world today. It's not just he's not punishing those sins. That's not the issue. He's not imputing those sins. He's not even charging the person with those sins today. Uh, why? Because he charged all those sins to his son. So how many sins did he charge to his son? Just the sins of the people of the age of grace? Or the, to all people? So, you know, it's a, it's a completed transaction whether people want to accept it or not. We are set apart as holy. Not by better behavior but by Holy Spirit baptism into the Savior. Keep in mind, Christ did not die for our righteousification. He died for our sins. He rose so that we could be joined to that resurrection life and have his, his righteousness imputed, freely imputed to our account. Like justification, you have it right now. It's yours if you're a believer. You are sanctified this very moment. If you've trusted Christ as Savior, you were sanctified at the point when you took God and his word uh, through the Apostle Paul. Now, what makes both of these spiritual transactions exciting is the fact that they occur independently uh, of any action taken on the part of the individual. 
except to believe the good news or gospel that Paul called uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, we are told only to trust in the finished cross work of, of God the Son and God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. They do everything else, which is why a, a, um, a well-beloved pastor of time past that... Um, uh, retired now, but still living, that uh, I admired very much, always said, you know, we do the easy part. God does all the saving. We do only all the being saved. Uh, some of you folks know who I'm talking about. We do nothing but believe to activate the judicial transactions called justification and sanctification. Both are true of believers apart from our performance, else we'd have reason to boast. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, Christ did our part for us. And that's why we have his righteousness imputed to us when we believe. What a novel message for the people of Paul's day to hear. Think back, because this is where this cornerstone's taking us, this next, this third cornerstone called dispensation. Think about the impact that message must have had on some of those folks who were Paul's kinsmen after the flesh, those Jewish folks of his day, who had been steeped in the word of God at that time, which would have been the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, you see, the apostle Paul was a new apostle. He was the new kid on the block, so to speak. He wasn't counted uh, among the twelve. In Matthew chapter 19, Christ is speaking. Listen to what he had to say to the twelve. <clears throat> chapter 19, verse 28. Jesus said unto them, unto who again? Unto the twelve. Verily I say unto you, you twelve, that ye which have followed me, the twelve again, in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory. Did Paul follow Christ during his earthly ministry? No. But those who did follow Christ uh, are going to sit on thrones when Christ takes his throne in the, in the um, regeneration, the millennial kingdom. And how many thrones? Well, this is what the kingdom prophets talked about. Twelve. Uh, the twelve preach, but that millennial kingdom is going to be set up. And here we have twelve who preach that it was at hand. And now those twelve are being told they shall also sit upon how many thrones again? Twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So uh, the twelve apostles had been preaching that the earthly kingdom had been promised to Israel and that it was at Israel's doorstep at that point in time. Now Christ is telling them there will be twelve thrones in that earthly kingdom for those twelve apostles to sit on when that kingdom comes to fruition here on earth. That comes out pretty even, does it not? Twelve and twelve. Twelve apostles, twelve thrones. But then the apostle Paul comes along. And he begins proclaiming his own unique apostleship. And he said, I came behind none of those. None of those folks. He's preaching a message quite different. Some things were the same. Some things differed. He's teaching a message that in many ways is unique and distinct from that which the other apostles had preached before him. He's not talking about that earthly kingdom at all. He, he doesn't mention that earthly kingdom. He's talking about a citizenship in heaven. And he's talking to Gentiles, no less, apart from the nation Israel. In fact, he's calling himself the apostle of the Gentiles. And they don't have to come to God through Israel's program any longer. What an amazing thing for those Jewish folks of that day to hear. You can imagine that some wheels were beginning to uh, turn in the minds of at least some of those who were hearing or reading, as the case may have been, Paul's words. You see, while the assembly at Rome was comprised mostly of Gentiles, as we mentioned at the outset of the study, there were some Jews in that assembly as well. Uh, some Jews who Paul knew had a knowledge of God's word up until that time, which would have been the Old Testament scriptures again. You can imagine what those Jews must have been thinking. We know they were self-righteous Jews. Where did Paul go to find unbelieving Jews? The synagogue, the very place Christ had warned the apostles to stay clear of. They'd kill him. <laughs> and so uh, Paul went to the synagogue to find steeped in the law of Moses, Jewish folks that had not accepted Christ as their Messiah or uh, changed their thinking that they had not earned their righteousness through their performance. You can imagine what those Jews must have been thinking when Paul came along. I can, I can picture it in my mind. I can picture it going something like this. Wait a minute, Paul. Uh, hold your horses or camels, uh, whatever the case may have been. Scripture tells us that we Jews are God's chosen people. Uh, look, Paul, perhaps you've forgotten what's written in Deuteronomy. Uh, notice God's words to us. God said in Deuteronomy 7, 6, For thou, speaking to us, Paul, speaking to the Jews, art in holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. That's us, Paul. <laughs> We're God's special people. We're his chosen people, his holy nation. God told Abraham that whosoever blesses us, God's going to bless. Whosoever curses us, God's going to curse. We're special, Paul. Uh, this is pretty serious business what you're now proclaiming. Uh, 
Uh, can you picture this taking place? I, I can picture it. I can see the wheels turning in their minds as they're, they're questioning this apostle's uh, credentials. And listen here, Paul. Um, you apostle of the Gentiles. I imagine they got pretty, pretty mean-spirited. Uh, the thought line may have been, all the families of the earth are to be blessed through us. Not independent of us, but through us. Scripture tells us that very thing. And they could say that to Paul and be correct. That's what God told Abraham. And why should we not believe what God has said to our father Abraham? Was what many of them were probably telling Paul. And if you don't believe us, Paul, thought line could have continued, listen to our prophets. You should know this as well as anyone else, Paul. You know our scriptures. Uh, our prophet Zechariah said, Thus saith the Lord, Zechariah 8.23, of hosts, In those days it shall come to pass that ten men shall take hold out of all the languages of the nations, plural, Gentiles, even shall take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew, saying, We will go with you. For we have heard that God is with you. Um, so they would say, You can see that for yourself. Paul, what are you talking about here? We Jews were promised a land. We were promised a king. We were promised a kingdom. It's all part of God's covenant to us. We're to be the focus, Paul. Can you see the, the um, consternation in their minds? We Jews are supposed to be God's channel of blessing to the earth. Scripture states that as plain as the nose on your face. We're God's chosen people. Now look what you've gone and done, Paul. Uh, you're saying that we're all on equal ground today, that the Gentiles are just like us. Uh, you, Paul, you're telling people that we are all under sin, that we are no different from the Gentiles. Why, you're saying that be, being declared righteous and being set apart as holy unto God comes not through performance at all, not through the law, but just through belief. Performance is not a part of the picture. You're saying that the Gentiles even participate in the adoption of sons? We've just read that part of your letter, Paul. Can you hear their words? And to add insult to injury, you're telling us that justification, sanctification, have nothing whatsoever to do with keeping the law, the law of Moses. What's going on here, Paul? You can hear their words. Um, what happened to the law? You see, Romans 9, 10, and 11, those three chapters, and why we call them the dispensational cornerstone, uh, is because Paul is answering those questions in Romans 9, 10, and 11. He's answering the questions he anticipated would come from the Jews who would, who would rise up in protest to the new message that he'd been preaching and in light of his new apostleship. So Paul wrote Romans 9, 10, 11 to tell the Jews, along with all who would read those letters later on, what happened to God's program with his earthly nation and uh, the promises God made to those folks. Um, why did God make those promises to Israel and not fulfill them? Paul's going to answer that. How does God intend to fulfill those promises? Does he indeed intend to fulfill them in the first place? In plain and simple terms, what happened to that earthly kingdom program? Paul's going to tell us in Romans 9, 10, and 11. You see, we're at a, a, a critical juncture in our study of the book of Romans. Uh, I contend that a proper understanding of Scripture is utterly impossible apart from a proper understanding of these next three chapters, Romans 9, 10, and 11. Let me show you what happened in theological circles. There are two major schools of thought. Most of you folks know this quite well sitting here. Two major schools of thought in modern-day Christianity, unquote, unquote, uh, quote, unquote, that relate specifically with what we're about to study in these three chapters. Uh, they are the covenant view or the covenant position and the dispensational position uh, for those who are joining us for the first time. Uh, I'm sure you've heard the term covenant theology. Uh, I know you're familiar with churches where the word covenant is part of the name of the, the denomination. Well, that's because the covenant view is the view these folks adopt. And most of you are familiar with that term dispensation or dispensations. Uh, dispensational theology, it would be called. Covenant theology basically teaches that God never intended to fulfill his promises to Israel in a literal sense to begin with. Uh, so the covenant theologians adopt what is called the allegorical method of Bible interpretation. They say you cannot take all of God's promises to Israel in a literal sense. He never meant them to, to be literally. And they say that was Israel's problem. They didn't want the kingdom when they found out it was a spiritual kingdom. Uh, they wanted a physical kingdom. And they didn't know God had allegory in mind. Well, um, they would say God was using figure of speech called allegory when speaking to Israel. 
the promises God made to those people are to be fulfilled in a spiritual way only to spiritual Israel rather than in a literal sense to a literal earthly nation. And guess who they believe spiritual Israel happens to be? Why, it's us. You guessed it, the church today. Uh, Covenant theology would say we are spiritual Israel. We've replaced the Jewish physical program. Therefore, God's giving to us in a spiritual way all that was promised to Israel. And they use allegory to to come up with that. That's how he intended to fulfill those promises in the first place. The kingdom that was promised to Israel simply becomes something else now. It becomes the kingdom of God where? In our hearts. So you have covenant theology. Uh, I know you've heard the phraseology. Now, the other approach is called the dispensational approach. That's why it's important we understand this next cornerstone of Romans. You see, Paul provides the answers to the covenant view in these next three chapters. And he gives a concise answer in a beautiful summation, in my opinion, in chapter 11. Let me jump ahead for just a few minutes and take you there. We find it in Romans chapter 11, beginning with verse 25. Key sitting right here in this passage, folks. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. Some are lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel. Next word. Until. Until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Come into what? Well, let's look at that. You see that word until there? That, that's a key word. And so all Israel shall be saved. Verse 20, 26 goes on to say, As it is written, There shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. So what is this all about? And what sins is he talking about? Is there a national forgiveness online here? Yes, there is in time future. As concerning the gospel, Paul says here, they, Israel, from a national standpoint, are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. Uh, You see, something had happened as far as God's program with Israel is concerned, but Paul wants us to understand that God hasn't abandoned that program altogether. That's the the key issue here. He simply put it on hold for a time. Uh, You might think of it as being in a state of suspended animation, if you want to. Uh, Put on the shelf, so to speak, awaiting a time of future fulfillment. Some people use the word abeyance. You may hear that from time to time, which means pause, hold, time out suspension Uh, that's the idea behind the word abeyance that's why we see the word until in verse 25 Uh, set aside would really be more a more clear idea there until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in again come into what to Israel's program not at all it's not what Paul's saying here come into the kingdom of God is the idea do you remember that passage we looked at in Ephesians talking about union for this cause I bow my knees unto the father of our Lord Jesus Christ of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named now some could make the argument that they came into Christ till the Gentiles come into Christ which is what the mystery was all about a big part of the mystery Um, you see God had a program in mind concerning the heavenly realm It's crucial to understand this. Paul isn't talking about Gentile believers of his gospel coming into a Jewish program. Uh, Let every man remain in the calling to which he's been called, Paul said. That wasn't Paul's point. Look how Paul begins Romans 11, verse 25. He said, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. So Paul wants us to know something here so that we won't be spiritually ignorant. Uh, He doesn't want us to be uninstructed. Unlearned. We might even say dummies when it comes to Israel's program. He wants us to know that God has a program with Israel and he made some promises to them and he intends to fulfill them in the literal way that he he gave them. He's just put that program on hold for a time and this hold is a temporary situation. That's what Paul's showing us here. It's not a permanent condition. It's a temporary situation. If we fail to understand these things, Paul tells us we we will become wise or we will tend to become wise in our own conceits as he states there in verse 25. In fact, in in the pride of our own human wisdom, we might come to think that we have become the assumers and fulfillers of all the promises God made to the nation Israel. In other words, we might fail to see the significance of a special program with the Gentiles, dispensation of grace, and suppose that we have become a part of Israel's program or that we've replaced their program if we don't understand Romans 9, 10, and 11. If we think that we've become a part of Israel's program, that we've become spiritual Israel, consider some of the ramifications. We might also think that we need to go to Israel's scripture uh, because those scriptures were written about us. 
we, we could come to some other uh, uninstructed conclusions as well. We might begin to think that we're going to inherit the land forever. Um, and that land is your land. That land is my land. That land is meant for you and me. That's what we might come to think of if we jump back and say we become part of Israel's program. That leads to a little problem when it comes to where we think we're going to spend eternity, does it not? Uh, which is it? Will we be in heaven? Will we be on earth? Some pastors are preaching both. Uh, if we become spiritual Israel, we have some questions to answer when it comes to our eternal, our eternal dwelling place. Some say heaven, some say earth. Some say we're going to heaven, but then we're coming right back down to the earth where we'll probably inherit the earth forever. Uh, so there's a lot of dissension here as to where we'll be through eternity. Think about this. If we think we've become the assumers and fulfillers of Israel's promises, that their fullness is our fullness, why we might want our apostle, the apostle of the Gentiles, the apostle Paul, to sit on one of those 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, why not? If we've become the assumers and fulfillers of their program. What's wrong with Paul having a place of authority in the earthly kingdom promised to Israel? And you know what that means, don't you? That means we're going to have to get rid of one of those other apostles. Somehow, we've got to do away with one of them. How's God going to do away with one of those other apostles? Well, modern-day religianity has an answer for that. What would their answer be? God never intended Matthias to replace Judas in the first place. Who did he intend to replace Judas? Paul. So the twelve just chose a miss. Uh, and what did he do? He just let the twelve have their way. Uh, you've heard that probably, uh, or at least some version of it. I have. Um, I've heard that view expressed on several occasions by noted Bible teachers, uh, supposedly noted theologians. Well, they are noted, but you know, for what I don't know with that idea. In spite of the fact that Scripture tells us that the apostles were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they let the Holy Spirit do the selecting when it came to that twelfth apostle. Paul didn't even fit the criteria. You see, you run into all sorts of problems when you think that the church today is spiritual Israel. All sorts of problems crop up. Problems you have to ignore or spiritualize away unless you understand that God has two distinct programs in mind within his overall purpose and plan for mankind. He has a plan and program with the church comprised of believing Israel of time past, believing Israel of time future. Then he has a plan and program for the church today. Uh, the church of the heavenly kingdom calling is what we should name it. What Paul wants us to see here in these next three chapters is that we have not become spiritual Israel. That's, that's what he's showing us very clearly in 9, 10, and 11 of Romans, of, uh, of Romans chapter 9. Uh, God has not combined his, uh, his two programs, or of Romans I should say. God's not combined his two programs into one program. Um, at least not yet. God has put his program with Israel on hold while he fulfills his plan and purpose with the Gentiles during a brand new, different program revealed to and through a brand new apostle for a new dispensation. And that would be the Apostle Paul. So there's been a shift in things, in a manner of speaking, and that's what Paul's explaining in these next three chapters of Romans. Israel's program has been put on hold until... I, I have that word until underlined and circled in my Bible, but that until will last until... God's program concerning the earthly kingdom realm comes to completion. When the fullness of the Gentiles come in, a determination to be made only by God, he will resume his program and he will fulfill his purpose and his plan with earthly nation Israel and their promised earthly kingdom. Uh, he'll pick it up right where he left off. And all the promises he made to those folks will be fulfilled in a literal sense, the way he made them. That's the dispensational approach to Scripture. The approach we take here. And that's why it's very important we rightly divide the word of truth. In fact, that's what rightly dividing the word of truth is all about, in, in my estimation. Rightly dividing the word is distinguishing between God's earthly program with Israel and his heavenly program with the church today. Uh, now, we might as well throw something else in here. Some people have a problem uh, with Paul's statement that all Israel shall be saved. Uh, they say, how can you take that literally? Well, every last person who is Jewish at the time when God resumes his earthly program be saved well there's really a pretty simple solution to that it's twofold uh, first of all God will only recognize true believers at that time as being true Israel now we're going to get to that uh, in chapter 9 but look at chapter 9 verse 6 not as though the word of God had taken none effect for they are not all Israel which are of Israel who is Israel from God's point of view Believing Israel, those who would take him at his word. Just because a person was Jewish by nature, by birth, rather Jewish by heritage, did not mean uh, that God recognized that person as being numbered with the people. 
numbered with the nation of believers. Make no mistake, in time past, to be part of that covenant God made with Abraham, you had to be Jewish by birth, all right. That was a must, Jewish by birth, or a proselyte to Judaism. But you also had to be something else. You had to be a believer in God's revealed word to the Jews at that time. It wasn't enough to just be born Jewish. The same thing will be true in time future, by the way, when God resumes his program with that nation. Uh, You see, God distinguishes even among the earthly people of Israel who are true believers and who are not. Um, In fact, John does that in 1 John. And when God deals with his earthly people, God only sees the true believers in that program as being true Israel. Now, the second part of the answer lies in verse 26. So all Israel shall be saved as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. When Christ comes back to the earth at his second coming, Israel will see their error. I'm believing Israel will. Uh, will see that error. Those who do not change their thinking at that point in time and confess their failure under the law contract will be destroyed. Only the ones who are left will be saved. This is the one is left in the field, one's taken, one's left in the bed, one's taken. Uh, What's the idea there? Uh, It's not a 50-50 split and the odds are 50-50. That's not what it's about. Uh, The truth there is that some will be allowed to remain in that land when Christ returns. Some Jewish folks. But other Jewish folks, oftentimes, or I should say at least at one time, referred to as the children of the kingdom, shall be cast out. They think they have claim to that kingdom by their heritage. But they don't have claim to that kingdom because they're unbelievers. And they will be taken out of the land and taken to judgment. So if you were a Jew and you were living at this point in time, time future, you'd want to be left behind. You wouldn't want to be taken away. Again, we can can take these things literally, folks. Now let's go back to where we left off. We've got time. Paul knew that in light of all that he'd been saying, all that he had written thus far in this Romans epistle, that the Jews of his day would have had some pretty serious questions as far as the Jewish program was concerned and as far as his apostleship was concerned. As we said earlier, Paul outlined some terrific blessings that are available to everyone today on the basis of simply taking God at his word. Uh, Blessings that come at the point of our salvation. All spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Uh, Blessings such as justification, sanctification, even the blessing of being placed as adult sons, the adoption we spoke about earlier. How could all these things be true in light of the promises God made to Israel if if we did not, in fact, become a part of Israel's program? Well, we'll spend the remainder of our time today by looking at a question or two the Jews may have raised to Paul. And we'll we'll, we'll devise the questions on the basis of the answers that Paul gives in our text. So as Paul answers what he supposes is coming his, going to come his way, we can figure the question he knows people are going to ask. You see, we don't see the questions themselves here. We only see Paul's answers. But again, we can anticipate the questions based on those answers. So we'll develop our questions according to the way Paul gives the answers. Here we go. The question from today's text would go something like this. With everything you've said, Paul, it sounds to us like you've kind of turned your back on the Jews. You're the apostle of the Gentiles. Uh, You've deserted your kinsmen, according to the flesh, Paul. You've denied the law's ability to save anyone. And you are clearly put the Gentiles on equal ground with the Jews. Are you a turncoat, Paul? That's what some might have been asking him. Are you a traitor to your people and your program? Have you turned against the Jews Now watch Paul answer that in verses 1 through 3. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continue sorrow in my heart. For I could wish myself that myself were accursed from Christ. For my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul hadn't given up on the Jewish folks. That's the first place he went everywhere he ministered. So let's take it phrase by phrase. Paul gives a three-part testimony, we can say here, in this passage to prove that he had not deserted his Jewish kinsmen, that he genuinely loved these folks and that he was concerned for them. Notice how how he begins here. I say the truth in Christ. First of all, Paul was telling them that his sincere love for them was evident in the fact that he was entirely open and honest with them. Uh, The word translated truth here comes from the Greek word um, aletheis, It literally means unconcealed, unhidden. So Paul's saying, I didn't keep anything back. I didn't conceal anything from you folks. I've been entirely truthful with you. 
Uh, tell me, is there something less than being entirely truthful? Have you ever heard the statement half-truth? Uh, you know, it is possible to tell only part of the story, to leave out some of the pertinent details, details relevant to the situation at hand, so that the picture is a little fuzzy, not quite as clear as it could be because it's really not a complete picture. Paul's saying, I'm giving you the whole truth. Uh, the whole truth and nothing but the whole truth, so help me God, <laughs> is what he's saying here. I haven't left anything out. I'm putting it all on the table so that you can see for yourself what has become of God's program with the Jewish nation. I'm telling it like it is. Let me show you where we see the same idea concerning Paul's complete openness presented in the book of Acts. Paul was speaking to the Jews here also, and we see the same thought. Notice Acts 20.20. 20. How I kept back how, how much? Nothing that was profitable unto you, but have shown you and have taught you publicly and from house to house. Paul was not one to hide the truth, was he? He spoke the truth. Just a few verses down in Acts chapter 20, we find that same thought presented once again in Acts chapter 20, verse 27. For I have not shunned, Paul said, uh, I have not avoided uh, to declare unto you how much of the truth. <coughs> All the counsel of God. So let me ask a question. Paul knew that he was teaching perplexing things uh, when it came to the, to the Jews. Things that would not be easy to understand for those who were familiar with the earthly Jewish program. And Paul also knew that the things he was teaching would be offensive as far as some of those Jews were concerned. He knew his, his words would not be popular. He was basically telling those folks that God's program with Israel, with them, uh, was no longer God's way of dealing with man. Uh, that God had put that program on hold for a time and that God was now dealing not through Israel, but with all alike and in spite of Israel's fall. He's now going to deal with the Gentiles on equal footing with the Jews. Paul knew that the Jews wouldn't want to hear that, much less believe it. Um, that would have been hard to stomach, we could say, for those, those Jewish folks. Tell me, would Paul hold back some of that truth uh, in order to keep from offending some of those people or in order to maintain his popularity with those people? Um, what did he say? I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Paul wasn't interested in winning any popularity contests um, when it came to revealing correct doctrine. He spoke the truth in love. Never forget that. Uh, but he spoke the truth. Paul didn't hide part of the truth in order to maintain friendships. He put it all out on the table and he told it like it was. Now when we sit and filter, when we're supposed to be avoiding at all costs any preacher who's teaching any other gospel than the gospel message that Paul preached, are we not holding back some of the truth from those folks? Of course, we shouldn't be dividing uh, when it comes to those folks and what they're doing. But we should be teaching what we believe. If we cannot teach what we believe, we shouldn't be where, where we are uh, where they don't believe what we believe. There's something here with which we can make application. We should never be ashamed of what we believe. Have you ever thought about that? Uh, a well-known, highly respected grace teacher, conference speaker, I might add, said this. Some grace believers will gladly proclaim Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, but kind of want to hide the fact that there are dispensational distinctions in God's program with the Gentiles and his program with Israel. Let me say this. And this may throw some people a curveball. There are some things that are not distinctions. And I can tell you that if you share all those and put all those things on the table, there will be people in the grace movement, so-called, who will be just as perplexed and uh, the friendships will be gone. Um, but some things we're not anxious... So there are some things we're not anxious to bring up, even to those people who know nothing about right division. Sometimes we're so afraid of offending someone that we shun, avoid, uh, we neglect, skip over some of the things that we know will divide. Uh, that's just how it goes. It's often far easier to concentrate on our likenesses, is, is it not, than on the things which, with, we, with which we disagree. But you know when we do that, the danger is we may never get around to revealing what we believe to these folks. Um, Paul didn't reveal some of the truth and hide some in order to avoid disappointment or keep from making enemies. Uh, he revealed all of the truth. He said, I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Well, we should never be ashamed to tell folks what we believe. But there are some considerations we have to keep in mind. Uh, two things. Paul said one of them. Christ said the other. Because it's a principle that Christ said we can apply today. Ephesians 4.15. Listen to the Apostle Paul. But speaking the truth how? in love may grow up into him in all things which is the head even Christ so we should always speak the truth from an attitude of humbleness kindness 
not an attitude born of arrogance, uh, pride, condescension. Nothing will prompt a person to raise what I call a defensive wall to understanding faster than an arrogant and boastful attitude of I know it all and let me tell you a thing or two and you better tell me that I'm right. I'm going to keep telling you till you tell me I'm right. That's a lot, uh, the attitude a lot of folks have. We shouldn't be pushy with our proclamation, uh, if you know what I'm talking about here. People can read through that type of attitude in a heartbeat uh, faster than you can tell them what you believe. Uh, and the walls come up. They begin formulating a defense before you even finish telling your story. So we need to speak the truth in love or it's better to let someone else do the speaking. Uh, Christ said in John 16:12, I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. So there's an issue here of speaking the truth in love, attitude, and there's an issue of magnitude. How much do we share with the people that we're going to that we, we know do not understand the things that we're seeing in Scripture? Christ wasn't talking about the mystery, so don't misunderstand me here. That was a secret hidden in the mind of God till it was revealed to Paul. But I think you see the idea here. Uh, this is where the saying, Rome wasn't built in a day is, comes into play. The point is, Christ recognized that people were at different levels in their learning. He understood that. The same was true when it came to Paul and the Corinthian saints, was it not? Paul said, he, they're babes. I couldn't reveal to you. I couldn't move on with you folks. You couldn't chew meat doctrine. I have to give you milk. And so he stayed with the milk. He did a little here, a little there. Um, it... it, it it's true whether it had to do with the earthly kingdom program or here. This is a learning truth that we're looking at. It comes in modern day, in current day technological jargon, we might say, or lingo. We might say, Paul transferred data with a slow modem. <laughs> we might put it that way. Uh, he didn't try to download the whole program in a single setting. He didn't stop feeding. He just fed a little bit at a time. He let them chew on a bite. Uh, B-Y-T-E. <laughs> Dan's laughing. Uh, a bite they could handle. Then he gave them more. He increased uh, the hard drive there. We see this concept over the, in the book of Isaiah. This sums it up quite well. Listen to the prophet Isaiah, a prophet of Israel in Isaiah 28.9. Whom shall he teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breasts. Look at verse 10. For precept must be upon precept. Precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. You see the idea? So you don't have to get across everything you know in one sitting. Just a simple little truth. Uh, you know, sometimes when you're teaching young people, they say, let them go home with something they can remember. Rather than going home with a whole lot of things, they don't have a clue what you said when they leave the, leave the room. Well, I'm guilty there. <laughs> uh, I, I spew out a lot from, from the lectern here. But let them go home with some point they can remember. is more important for our young folks than trying to teach everything all at one time. Some grace believers are so zealous of sharing what they know, which is a good thing, uh, that they want to open the mouths of those they want to win over and they want to just cram that bucket load of grace truth, that newfound knowledge, right down their throats in one setting. Uh, that's not a good thing. So the point we're trying to make, simply we should heed the two principles I've just mentioned. The attitude of doing the sharing is crucial. Uh, the attitude of the one doing the sharing is crucial. We shouldn't be condescending. We should never be harsh, overbearing, cramming it down their throats. We should never malign the character uh, of those with whom we disagree. I've seen a lot of that take place in grace circles. This happens oftentimes when it comes to grace believers wanting, wanting to one-up other grace believers, by the way. Um, point two, we shouldn't Try to do it all at once. A little here and just a little there. Leave them with something. Sometimes you can leave them with just enough that they want to dig further what you have if you don't share anything further. Um, and that, that really happens. It's um, You stop at certain points and you just don't share anything else. And you watch. And sometimes those very folks would come around and say, well, I have another question for you then in light of what you've just shared. And then you know it's time to add a little bit more. Uh, and I always begin, as I've told you many times, I always begin with reconciliation, not uh, right division. Reconciliation first and then right division is the way I approach it. But anyway, that's enough for today. Uh, more message on the, on the tabletop here and let, no time to do it in. So we'll just add it to the next one. Uh, we plan to do that study, that journey through the Bible. We'll hopefully begin next week with that journey through the Bible. Uh, we'll do it in a condensed form. We'll say a Reader's Digest journey through the Bible. And we'll probably start with the God of the Bible. 
before we get into the Bible itself. And then we'll go through the books in, in a uh, brief form and show you what's happening and why it's happening and what God's showing mankind all throughout the pages of Scripture as he works his plan, as that plan's working out down through the course of time. I uh, hope you'll stay with us. That's an interesting study. And um, I know I'm uh, excited about it and anxious to deliver it. So let's look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much today for another day of grace. We thank you um, that your grace is sufficient. It was sufficient for our apostle. It's sufficient for us. Uh, we thank you that you've given us all we need, as we say so often to you in prayer, that uh, we need for life and ministry in this age of grace. We just thank you so much uh, for that. We thank you for doing all of the doing, and we do only all of the receiving. Uh, you've made it so easy. Uh, the only obstacle is the pride nature of man who wants to reject it and be a part of the process, uh, take part in his own salvation. We thank you that you left us out when it comes to the doing. We thank you that you've done it all through your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What a marvelous God you are. We thank you for our apostle, and uh, we thank you so much for the gift of the Savior and the gift he gave of his life so that we might receive the gift of eternal life by taking Paul at his words when it came, comes to the gospel of Christ. We thank you for all things, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.